The technology likely to have the greatest impact on the next few decades has arrived. You can start building completely new concepts for payments that we've never thought of. Move the need for a financial intermediary to transact value. Bitcoin and the blockchain have an amazing future. This is going to transform society. Hello, one and all, and welcome to the Crypto Authority podcast. Today, we're coming at you with a different type of episode. And a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was reading through Twitter and I came across a, um, a post whereby these two gentlemen who joined me in the call today, Dan Held and David Jarrett, were debating the consensus algorithm that Bitcoin runs on, which is the proof of work system. And I thought there'd be an amazing opportunity to get you both on here so that we could kind of get your debate in audio form and go into it in a bit more detail. So um, yeah, David, do you want to introduce yourself first? Yep, I'm David Gerard. I'm the author of Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, book and blog. And I do a lot of journalism around crypto and blockchain. Fantastic. And Dan? I'm Dan Held. Uh, many of you might recognize me as Dan Heddle on Twitter. Uh, that is my actual last name. Uh, I've been in the space for seven years, worked on quite a few different products. My, my current product is called Interchange and we build core accounting software for large institutional service providers for trading. So fund admins, OTC desks, and exchanges. Fantastic. Well, Dan, I had you on the episode, I had you on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we discussed the case for proof of work, and it was one of my favorite episodes yet. But just for those who haven't listened to it, do you want to give a brief explanation of what proof of work is and how it works? Yeah, no problem. Um, and I'm going to keep it very high level. So I know there's going to be uh, a lot of nuance missed here, but I want to make it sure it's understandable for the layman. So from a basic standpoint, what Bitcoin's proof of work does is it protects the Bitcoin network. In the real world, we build walls and vaults around things that we care about. And no one would ever question that decision to spend the energy, to spend the money, to go build these things to protect to, to protect things that are valuable to us. And so similarly, how do we build walls in the digital world? Well, that's what Bitcoin's proof of work enables us to do. And at a very simple level, what it does is it takes energy and it converts energy into hashes or essentially, essentially uh, lottery tickets. And those lottery tickets are randomly chosen. And that is the winner of uh, X amount of Bitcoins per block and all the transaction fees per block. Every 10 minutes, the Bitcoin blockchain produces a new block. That block contains transactions from the last 10 minutes and the, uh, the block subsidy. And so Bitcoin's proof of work is essentially taking energy in the real world and taking that and piping it through something called an ASIC, which is essentially a, uh, a processor. And it's, it's spending that electricity in the real world to protect something in, in the digital one. And what's really important about that is there's no way to fake that energy usage. Um, so there's no way to circumvent it. There's no way to make it up or, or make it fake. You have to expend something in the real world. And so Bitcoin's proof of work is the proof that there was work done. Fantastic. I think that's a, that's a really good summary of what it is. And David, you're one of the main contrarians to Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain as a whole. Well, this ecosystem. What are your main concerns with proof of work? I think you have to ask the question, right, so this appears like a way of wasting energy to show your commitment. The question you have to ask from the outside view is, 
So what do we get for this? What we're doing is spending an entire country's worth of electricity on what appears to be the world's most inefficient payment network. So efficiency is a tricky word. I've read Dan's piece about, well, in, it's efficient depending on what you mean by the word efficient. So we can take normative views of what efficiency means. Um, like the view, what do you get done for this? Now this typically comes up when um, people say Bitcoin's wastes lots of electricity and the absolutely standard objection from Bitcoin proponents is, ah, but what about the existing financial system? So then you have to set out some reasonable criterion to compare the two. The obvious criterion which people normally compare is what each one achieves for what you've got, like how fast you can process things. Um, per transaction is obviously a problematic measure for Bitcoin. It's not ideal because energy usage doesn't scale with the number of transactions going through it. But then again, that applies to the um, existing system as well. So the um, arguments usually raised just say, ah, but what about the banking system without actual numbers attached? Or what about the banks and all their air conditioning and all their security guards and all the people who work there without attaching numbers? And if you're going per transaction, then you can compare it on the basis of, say, Bitcoin, maximum transaction rate, seven transactions per second, uses 0.1% of all the electricity in the world, 0.1% of all the electricity in the world. So let's count for the financial system literally the entirety of civilization, literally the entirety of the rest of civilization that isn't the Bitcoin mining network. 99.9% .9 of the electricity, 999 times as much. It does a lot more than 7,000 transactions per second. So you could say, well, the number of transactions doesn't matter, but, and some many comparisons then go to comparing total amount of electricity used. But if you're talking about, well, our thing isn't wasteful, it sort of obviously is. Now there's a point to it. That is, the point is, for it to be Bitcoin, it has to use up all this electricity. But then you have to wonder how much is having Bitcoin actually worth when you have externalities that are literally a country's worth of electricity. At the moment, the solution we've reached is that people can spend their money on what they want to. Fine. But these are externalities and these are issues that people raise. I think this isn't taken seriously enough by the Bitcoin community. Because when non -ordinary, your ordinary general public no-coiner hears about this stuff, they go, it uses how much electricity? They get really angry about it because Bitcoin sort of achieves not much. It, it's very important to Bitcoiners, but it really doesn't touch upon the economy for the rest of the world much. It's largely a speculative asset is you can just buy and sell and trade. There's no Bitcoin economy as such. There's no circular flow of income. It doesn't actually touch the world much, except for the bit where it's using a country's worth of electricity. Now, there's lots of things you can waste electricity on, um, but um, every other system in the world has a drive to efficiency. That is, it has a drive to use less electricity than it does. Um, I couldn't find the number, but I believe that consumer power use on lighting, the amount of electricity actually dropped when compact fluoros and um, LEDs became popular because incandescent is just terrible rubbish. And we finally managed to 
supersede it, it is possible for a, the in-demand function to actually use a lot less electricity. So I think it's worth examining, yes, but what do we actually get from proof of work? And are we actually getting what the publicity for proof of work claims? I'm not entirely sure we do, and those questions need examining. And Bitcoin really does have to answer to the general public who hear about this stuff and go, yes, but why are you using a whole country's worth of electricity? I don't see a lot of reaching out. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, but I'm going to, uh, I think, start in a reasonable flow that should, should kind of answer a lot of these questions. So, you know, I don't disagree with David on evaluating our usage of energy and, and what the ROI is. I think everything in life is about, you know, what cost does it cost and how much does it return in value? And I think we're constantly making that, that, that decision across many different things. So I don't disagree with that point. Um, you know, one, I think starting at, starting at what does Bitcoin do or what, what is, why is Bitcoin useful? I think we have to look at, you know, Bitcoin's origin. It was the, you know, the seed of Bitcoin was planted in the most bleak part, you know, bleak moment in U.S. financial history in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, now there, there is some debate as to like how intentional that was, but we can certainly say the month and the day was probably intentional by Satoshi. And, you know, in the first block in the blockchain, blockchain, Satoshi writes, UK chancellor on the verge of second bailout for banks. Um, you know, Satoshi's first statement after the white paper is the core problem of the financial system starts with central banks and fractional reserve banking. So, you know, Bitcoin's purpose isn't to be a cheap PayPal, it's to rebuild the world's financial system. So in order to do that, you're taking on a lot of different, very powerful entities, whether that be governments, big banks, um, Visa, you know, every single financial player, you're taking all of them on and essentially rebuilding the world's financial system. So I wanted to start there with like, you know, what is the purpose of Bitcoin and why is it valuable? It, it's a it's a permissionless system that isn't largely controlled by any centralized party, and that, that's very important. And I think in two thousand eight we saw what happens when when that that system that we put our trust in, our faith in, um, we see that kind of crumble. And so Bitcoin was built as a as an alternative. In regards to its electricity usage, I think a lot of people a lot of people's immediate reaction is like, wow, that's a lot of a lot of electricity. Um, I think several things to, to kind of better frame the energy usage would be, you know, one, Bitcoin is explicit about how much energy it uses, which is good and bad. You know, one, it gives us a very effective way to measure how thick the walls are around our digital ledger. How thick is that wall that we've built? On the other hand, people can look at it and go, wow, that's an enormous amount of electricity. You know, and most people aren't uh, physicists. They're not looking at the world and they're going, oh, well, thermodynamics, everything is energy. The burger ate, that's energy. Me walking around requires energy. Um, it's much harder to quantify, you know, the physical world energy usage other than like electricity, which is so explicit. So most people don't think about their massive energy consumption just on a personal level because not a lot of people think about thermodynamics on a day-to-day -day basis. When it comes to a comparison, you know, I think with anything in life, we must compare it to other other things that are equivalent or similar, because that gives us a good framing as to its effectiveness or its worth, et cetera. 
And I think the overall, you know, to look at Bitcoin's energy usage versus the existing financial system, I think it's critical to look at the aggregate because Bitcoin's energy usage is in aggregate. It's rebuilding the world's financial system in a, on a new platform, which is the Bitcoin blockchain. So I think that is the most equivalent way to look at it. And if we look at that, Bitcoin's energy usage is magnitudes less than the existing financial system for, for points David already kind of highlighted, which were, you know, you've got all the bank branches, you've got all the central bank servers, you've got all the buildings that they're in, you've got the energy required to build the buildings, you've got every person inside each branch, you have payment, you know, credit card swiping machines and every single register, et cetera, you know, it goes on and on from there. Uh, similarly, we could look at gold production as a good comparison as well. And Bitcoin uses less electricity than gold mining. And so, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to efficiency, you know, I think something critical, critical here is that if Bitcoin builds walls out of electricity, its conversion of the real world electricity into that wall, I would be, I would say is a good measure of that, that efficiency. Um, and as we've seen over time, the processors that are called ASICs that process that electricity and convert that into those lottery tickets, those have become more and more efficient over time, allowing electricity to be represented more effectively in terms of building that digital wall. You know, when it, when it comes to, you know, okay, how much electricity does Bitcoin use versus other countries? I think that's a really kind of silly vanity metric. Um, you know, for example, electric, U.S. electricity usage for Christmas lights uses more electricity than Ethiopia. It's sort of meaningless because neither, you know, you just, you frame it in like, oh my God, it's using an entire country's worth of electricity, but without any other context and without comparing it to other things, other silly things like light, you know, uh, Christmas lights, you know, it, it's a largely sort of a shock factor metric that people like to use. I, I think that that kind of adequately goes through a lot of what I heard David echo. Um, if I missed anything, let me know. Okay, so David, I'll let you come back with the response in a second, but I just remembered a figure that you gave me in our podcast chat the first time we chat, Dan, and that was... I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but that 76% of all electricity used in Bitcoin mining is sourced from renewable sources of energy. Is that correct? Yeah, I think uh, it might actually be closer to 78%. And I got that from the CoinShares uh, research that they did in terms of looking at, they did a super deep dive into looking how uh, Bitcoin mining was distributed across the world and where uh, the mining operations source energy from. I think something important to remember is that Bitcoin, because of its, you know, Bitcoin miners are constantly hunting for the cheapest sources of electricity, which means they're usually allocating their resources around um, energy that's been stranded or hasn't been utilized fully or excess capacity. Um, so it, Bitcoin essentially is hunting across the world for that cheap electricity and uh, some of that has has gone around certain over um, capacity of renewable resources like hydroelectric dams in China, <clears throat> where those were built with the anticipation that there would be much more building or that there would be a uh, de demand for that electricity uh, supply. And essentially, these Bitcoin miners are harnessing that that excess supply. Amazing. David, over to you. Cool. Um, just on the renewables argument, um, the CoinShares 
that paper has a number of issues which I would recommend you track down Maximilian Feig's response to it, which was in the block. Um, he's actually a, big, a cryptocurrency fan. He uh, works on Ethereum as well, which is going for proof of stake. And so he, he notes that objection that people might think he's just digging in the proof of work because of that. There's a number of problems with the renewables argument that the numbers aren't great, but even when mining does use renewables like hydroelectric power, it doesn't actually just use stranded electricity. It tends to push people off and they get pushed off their cheap electricity onto dirty electricity. Because the trouble with hydro is it's great stuff, but it's strictly limited. There's a strictly limited capacity for it per dam. This happened a lot in upstate New York um, around the St. Lawrence River um, in early 2018. See towns like Plattsburgh, New York. This was a famous example where a whole lot of Bitcoin miners moved into town, used the cheap electricity, and they used the entire allocated capacity from the local dams. And so the consumers in the town were pushed onto dirty electricity shipped in from elsewhere at three or four times the price. They were not pleased. Um, and then Bitcoiners, they finally worked out that they could actually like say, sorry, crypto mining is going to be charged at a much higher rate. Um, then the price dropped and the miners up stakes and left. You have to calculate that displacement factor. And the stranded electricity, there was actually a reasonable case for a while that mining in China, well, the electricity wasn't being used for anything else because there was a lot of stranded capacity, a lot of stranded hydro capacity. There was a lot of stranded coal capacity, which they used as well, because miners have no incentive to do anything except use the cheapest 24-7 supply, and that's usually coal. So as the grid gets more complete in China, there's a lot less stranded electricity. And so we see what we've seen through 2018, which is China is slowly pushing the miners out. Um, miners have electricity companies have been directed to sell electricity super cheap to crypto miners anymore. Uh, it has to be at commercial rates, that sort of thing. I must note the argument that ASICs get more efficient with time. This shows a misunderstanding of how proof of work actually works. It's an economic competition. That is to say, miners are competing with each other. So if one gets ASICs, that doesn't make mining use less electricity. It just means that one miner is able to more compete with another miner who then have to build out themselves. So it's what like an evolutionary standing still race, a red queen's race it's called, where everybody just keeps spending money as fast as they can to the um, asymptotic limit of one Bitcoin costing one Bitcoin to mine. This doesn't matter if, the, uh, if it's being mined on ASICs or if it's being mined on an iPhone. If everyone's got iPhones, the mining's, they're going to use as many iPhones as it takes to mine one Bitcoin, costing one Bitcoin to mine. So the other thing is that proof-of-work mining, has it, it's centralized. It says in the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi wanted one CPU, one vote. And although it was quite centralized, obviously, in 2009 when Bitcoin was just getting started, it was just Satoshi, Hal Finney, and a bunch of the early people just swapping coins and playing with this thing. Um, when they got into GPU mining, people would mine on video cards. 
um, it was quite democratic, actually. I mean, um, I had friends who actually mined Bitcoin and did quite well from it because they were super fastidious on equipment and electricity costs. And they managed to keep that going and actually make a profit until about 2014 when it all went completely ASIC. Because ASIC, ASIC stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. It means an IC that does one job. Like your phone basically has a few ASICs in it that do the job of being a phone. So this is ASICs that do the job of being Bitcoin miners or Ethereum miners or whatever miners. Um, the thing is that when the company that became Bitmain started making bit specialized chips that did nothing but Bitcoin mining, what happened was that they rapidly gained a monopoly or a new monopoly. Um, they make something like 80% of all the crypto mining chips. I believe this has actually gone down lately because Bitmain um, got a bit ambitious and they tried pivoting to Bitcoin Cash and the story is in their uh, IPO prospectus um, showing what their actual numbers are and it, it's quite daunting news. But they really, functionally, Bitmain is the central bank of Bitcoin. And um, so people trust they won't damage their business because obviously they want the system to work because they make a lot of money from it. But that's still a trust-based system. Um, it is not. It does not contain the guarantees against hostile actors that proof of work promised. Um, functionally, Bitcoin mining was centralised down to just a few miners by early 2014, and in July 2014, it actually hit a 51% um, attack. Well, it wasn't an attack. It hit 51% being mined by Ghash. They promptly split up. Uh, but they had been doing some selfish mining before then. They were busted doing that. They blamed a rogue employee at the time. But these attacks happen already. Um, so you have to ask whether the promise of proof of work is actually being realized. I'm pretty sure it actually isn't, and it's really just the centralized system. And we know the miners talk to each other. When you can have 95% of the mining capacity standing on one stage in a conference, it's hard to call that really very decentralized. I uh, want to correct one thing on the proof of work ASIC efficiency or the processor efficiency. I wasn't saying that it uses less electricity over time, just that it converts electricity into hashes um, more efficiently. Um, moving past that, I think, you know, typically what we see from Bitcoin critics is that largely they're, they're, their concern is rooted in that Bitcoin. They don't believe Bitcoin does anything of value um, and this is evident through the arguments that we've seen first fair enough yeah proof of work uses too much electricity and then well okay it doesn't use as much electricity as the existing financial system but that electricity is dirty and then we're like okay well 78 percent comes from from renewables and then they're like well actually those renewables are the bad renewables and it's sort of this endless cycle of we can never be good enough um, that because you don't believe that Bitcoin does something of value, then nothing we do and nothing we, we say about its energy usage can convince someone that it is a useful use of electricity. So I wanted to highlight that because I think that largely reflects a lot of skeptics that this is a never ending process to delegitimize Bitcoin. Um, and there is no perfect answer that they're going to like. Moving on to you know, to its energy usage and pushing people off of certain, uh, certain sort of, uh, you know, power. 
we've seen this same argument happen back in the 1970s with aluminum. So with aluminum smelting, uh, aluminum essentially takes bauxite, which is the raw ore, and electricity is 40% of the cost in converting that bauxite into aluminum. And so, you know, we saw this argument back in the Northeast where uh, local residents were similarly concerned around energy usage. Aluminum is such a core part of everything in our lives today that we would consider it ridiculous to even push back on the production of aluminum. Um, every single business in the world, every single person in the world impacts everything around them. It's something we can't stop. You know, we inevitably, by interacting with people or companies, in, inevitably by purchasing power or building things, will displace someone else from doing something else. And it may or may not be intentional. We just have to each go on our own path and each company has to go on its own path to build things that there is demand for. It's the basics of all economies. And so I, I think being overly concerned around, oh, does this push a few people away from getting electricity or not is somewhat immaterial. When it comes to Maximilian's uh, response, I haven't read that directly, so I can't comment on that. Going to Bitcoin's original intent of one CPU, one vote, I think Satoshi later on comments about how he sees mining becoming more and more commercialized. He didn't really perceive that people would continue to be mining on their, on their CPUs past the original sort of few years. Um, he definitely anticipated larger commercial style production happening. Um, when it comes to the centralization worry, uh, before Bitmain, there was Bitfury. So by the way, for the listeners, Bitmain is the number one producer of ASICs or Bitcoin miners. Um, now that is not necessarily a centralizing function in itself. It's the centralization of the production of the mining equipment. Um, they don't necessarily run that equipment. They, they go sell that equipment and then other people run it. So before Bitmain, there's Bitfury and Spondulis and uh, you know, Butterfly Labs, <laughs> the infamous Butterfly Labs, uh, which I'm not sure if many people remember that from 2013. But this has been a concern throughout the process, throughout Bitcoin's development. Um, if we look at, so the production of ASICs, whether that is centralized or not, is somewhat immaterial. As ASIC efficiency uh, become, becomes asymptotic, because there's a limit to how dense we can make these processors, eventually we reach the limit of physics, where the cost basically shifts, uh, shifts for Bitcoin mining from largely CapEx, which is the purchase of the ASICs, to OpEx, the purchase of electricity. Um, so as Bitcoin, as Bitcoin uh, grows and as Bitcoin becomes larger, there will be the, the hunt to go build these ASICs will become increasingly commoditized as this isn't rocket science and that large uh, chip foundries can go build these too. The market for Bitcoin is just so small before this that no one really cared. When it comes to um, the actual running of these machines and the protection of the network, we've seen mining pools, which is the collective pooled uh, mine or the effectively the, the pooled resources of these Bitcoin miners, um, we've seen those largely be distributed. Uh, we don't, you know, Ghash in 2014 did have 50, the Ghash mining pool did have 51% of the hash rate. However, that mining pool collectively has thousands of individual miners and they're all number, their number one concern is about profit. So if Ghash in a second had, had tried to do something that was really shady, that would have damaged the Bitcoin network's reputation or trust, then all of those miners would be 
removed from the GHash mining pool. So we've seen mining pool centralization essentially become more fragmented over time. Um, those mining pools are a collection of miners. So those miners have financial motives and will withdraw their hashing power if there's an issue. And finally, Bitcoin's proof of work is a genius incentive created by Satoshi. When people buy, when miners buy Bitcoin ASICs or miners, they buy the equipment and then they have to purchase the electricity. Now that is on a short-term basis, but some have long-term contracts for maximum profit. You cannot do anything else with that Bitcoin ASIC. It is only useful as a Bitcoin ASIC. And because of that, if you wanted to try to damage the network in a 51% attack, you would have to be willing to burn the money. You'd have to be willing to buy the ASICs, buy that electricity, and then burn it all. And that's what's so brilliant about Bitcoin security is that it's not just about a 51% attack. It's the fact that if someone did it, the only way to do it is to be willing to burn billions of dollars. And when Bitcoin, if Bitcoin hits a few trillion market cap, they'd have to be willing to burn hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's incredibly powerful because that means that at that stage, and there's a bunch of other game theory here, which even a 51% attack isn't that, isn't that bad of a scenario. What essentially that eliminates is all potential attackers. And so that means that Bitcoin can be trustworthy as the world's financial system. That's not attackable or it's hard to manipulate by, by any big party, including the US government. Yeah, I think you made a few really good points there, especially that last one. But we're running a bit short on time, but I still want to ask you guys one more question. So if you can, I just, be... I just wanted to answer one thing. I'm yeah, sure, go at, for it. I'm looking at Crypto51.app, which is the cost of doing a 51% attack on various proof-of-work coins. The cost of a one-hour attack on Bitcoin, BTC, is here as $325,000, not billions or whatever. I must also note, as we saw during the recent dip in November, you had the dark hash power that had just gone offline went over 50% of the hash rate. That's totally a risk. Idle machines just waiting to be used. And it doesn't cost so much to run them for a short length of time, just long enough. So it's a tricky one on trying to rely on that economic model as your security. Uh, you, can't, you can't just rent 51% of the hash rate. You have to buy it permanently. No one's going to rent you 51% of the hash rate. You have to buy the oh, miner. Totally. And so you can't look at a per, per hour cost. You have to look at the lifetime value of the ASIC. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff talking about it in per hour cost is very much an approximation. But and, well, it's not an accurate one because the machines aren't just useful for an hour. You have to buy them and their lifetime value is over the course of many months or, or potentially like six months plus. So, guys, the last question that I wanted to ask you guys, obviously we have our differences, but is there an alternative to proof of work for Bitcoin specifically? Like, like you mentioned, David, Ethereum are hopefully, um, well, they intend to swap from the proof of work algorithm consensus over to proof of stake. Do you think that there's an alternative for Bitcoin uh, or are we stuck with proof of work? Is that good enough to go by? Or is any kind of decentralized system attainable? So I think that last is actually the key problem because Bitcoin, decentralized systems, they're really hard to keep thoroughly decentralized in terms of control because centralization is always more efficient by whatever measure of efficiency you apply. Um, 
decentralization of some sort or somewhat decentralization is an important marketing point for the Bitcoin network. Um, but the, the forces of re-centralization occur naturally because economies of scale exist, which is why we can have huge mining pools and large warehouses filled with uh, miners and Bitmain. I believe it's down to about 25% now, but they ran over 50% of the mining themselves at times in multiple pools. So it wasn't a single pool at 50%. But um, it's a tricky one. And I do think that one, Ethereum is going to go proof of stake if they can possibly attain it. And two, it will immediately centralize really badly the moment they do that. And three, that won't actually matter because the um, businesses who run stuff on top of Ethereum will be quite happy with a managed centralized platform because businesses are quite used to using open but owned platforms. But so that won't actually do the trick that Bitcoin wants to do. Um, I don't know that Bitcoin will ever change its algorithms or anything because Bitcoin's governance is somewhat dysfunctional. There's basically been a low simmering and sometimes more loudly simmering civil war going on in Bitcoin since about 2015 and when transactions started clogging up. Um, we've had multiple splits with the Bitcoin cash splits, the big one. Um, we had Bitmain throwing some of its weight behind Bitcoin cash. So in September 2017, um, the time for a block was up to an hour at times. Um, nobody really much noticed that because all the action was on the exchanges and this was in the upslope of the bubble. But Bitcoin's governance is not the greatest. Um, it, and this, some Bitcoin fans tout this as an advantage. No one can mess with the algorithm. It's set in stone. So I don't think that will actually change either way, whether it's an advantage or disadvantage. I don't think that's going to change. And Bitcoin's going to have proof of work as long as Bitcoin exists which will probably be decades. Yeah, some really interesting thoughts there, David. So Dan, over to you. Is there an alternative? I, I don't believe that proof of stake is a, a good enough alternative. Um, the, you know, it's largely a virtue signaling mechanism for environmental focused people. Um, but the, and it's also unproven, um, the, the, I guess, savings in electricity, which if you build a wall out of pure electricity, I don't think there's anything about saving anything. It's, that's how you build the wall. Um, it's like building a wall in the real world. If you try to fake the amount of concrete that you poured, there's still not the amount of concrete that should be there to protect you. So I agree that proof of stake is a, is a centralizing function. And I also agree with, agree with David's uh, point that most things tend to move towards uh, centralization. And that's where Bitcoin's entire community is focused on being as focused as as uh, driven to to push Bitcoin to be decentralized as possible, and that's how it was created originally. When it comes to its governance structure, Bitcoin over the last uh, few years has done a lot of improvements. You've got SegWit, uh, which improved a layer one efficiency. You've got Schnorr signatures coming up, which also improves layer one efficiency. Lightning launched on mainnet, which Lightning exponentially increases Bitcoin's transactions per second. Um, yes, Bitcoin has seven transactions per second on chain. However, with Lightning, you can have a near infinite amount of transactions per second because each channel that's opened can have up to like 400 transactions per second. Um, and that's, that's exponential. So 
Um, in terms of you know Bitcoin not innovating, I think that's a complete fallacy. Bitcoin has been innovating. If you build the world's financial system and you redo it from scratch, and that's what Bitcoin's doing, you want to make sure that layer one is really secure and robust. This isn't the next photo sharing app. We don't want to move fast and break things. We want to move very deliberately. And Bitcoin is built by some of the best cryptographers in the world. And when it comes to the Civil War and um, in Bitmain, um, people who sided with the other side of the Bitcoin Civil War, uh, the currency called Bitcoin Cash, or commonly known as Bcash, uh, was largely crushed. Uh, Bitmain got crushed so badly because of their poor decisions there that the CEO, Jihan Wu, had to step down. Uh, they also had to cancel their IPO. So when you fight Bitcoin, when, you try, when there's a faction internally that tries to fight what most Bitcoiners want, they get crushed. And that's what we saw. The price of Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin is massively different. The hash rate is massively different. The amount of Google queries for Bitcoin versus Bitcoin Cash massively different trading volume, any metric you like on chain transactions. Yes, there are differences in, in how people think about Bitcoin and Bitcoin. I think I'm more bullish than ever that Bitcoin survived a civil war and is still thriving despite it. Most other cryptocurrencies haven't survived such an event. Absolutely. And uh, just to touch on Bitmain there, I, um, I don't think the official figures are released for Q4 yet, but some estimates were released and it's estimated that in Q3 and Q4 of last year, they made a loss of over $500 million. So um, yeah, evidently they, uh, I, think, I think they chose the wrong side. Um, in the civil- getting greedy. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, guys, this is, um, this is I, I don't want to use the word revolutionary, but this has been a fantastic podcast for me because it's the first debate that we've held. And to be able to get both points of view is a really rare thing to see within crypto because as, as we've said before, David, when we've spoken, we often get caught in this ecosystem of cryptocurrencies and digital assets with lots of people who are believers in it. And it's, it's refreshing and healthy to have someone like yourself to tell us, oh no, this is bad. And then to make us double think ourselves and um, yeah, any criticism is good. So both of you, uh, an enormous thanks from the team here at Crypto Authority for taking the time out of your day to come on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us and uh, appreciate the debate, David. Thank you. You too. Okay, guys. Well, um, Dan, if people want to find out more of your work, you said they can follow you on Twitter, which is Dan Heddle. Is there, any, um, is there anywhere else where people can find you or anywhere else you want to plug? Uh, so the, the handle is actually Dan Held. I changed the oh. name. The name is Dan Heddle. Um, so at Dan Held on Twitter or uh, danheld.com for my kind of personal thoughts on the space. Uh, if you have uh, a big crypto business that has bad, you know, really, really hard time with your accounting, um, reach out via interchangehq.com. We've got a form there and then I'd be happy to, to answer more about what, we, what we've built. Amazing. And David? Yep. I'm David Gerard on Twitter and basically I got on the uh, internet in the 1990s, so I'm the first hit on my name. Um, I have the website, which is at davidgerard.co.uk slash blockchain. I'm supposedly working on my next book. I say supposedly because I haven't written anything a month. Working title at the moment is World's Worst ICOs, and you can bet there's a ton of material. (laughs) Amazing. Well, guys, once again, thank you so much, and um, 
I wish you both a, well, I was about to say good evening, and it is a good evening for you, David, but for you, Dan, you're just waking up, so have a fantastic day.